Mike Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Michael Cooperson will join us to discuss impostures. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Show. Well, Arabic literature is filled with unique and interesting stories that have rarely been heard in the West. Joining us today to discuss some of these is Dr. Michael Cooperson. Dr. Cooperson is professor of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures at the University of California, Los Angeles. He has penned the new book, Impostures, 50 Rogues Tales Translated 50 Ways, which takes a unique approach at translating some of these works. And Dr. Cooperson, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks so much for the invitation. Well, it is certainly our pleasure, certainly a fascinating collection of work that you've translated in your collection entitled Impostures. You could tell us a little bit about it and why you decided to go about the approach that you did to translating these works. So this is a collection of 50 stories written in the 11th century by a man named Al-Hariri, and his name means the silk merchant, so we can just call him that, it's a little easier. So the silk merchant wrote these 50 stories, and he was trying to show off everything that the Arabic language could do. So rhymes, puns, verses word games, palindromes, riddles. And this work, he was, he was really nervous about it at first because he didn't know whether people would receive it well because it was a fiction, it was stories. It's the story of a man who wanders around the world basically performing verbally on the street to earn enough money to live. And so the, each of the 50 stories shows him performing some kind of trick with words. So... The, the book was written to really help people learn Arabic, I think, and for those who knew it already to show off all the different things it could do. But despite the fact that he was worried that people might not receive it well because it was fiction, it turned out to be really, really popular. So the collection ends up being used as a teaching text for people all over the Muslim world who, for whatever reason, want to learn Arabic. The problem is that none of the translations into other languages were well, I shouldn't say none. There are a few exceptions. But mostly, translators were afraid to approach it because it's all about word games. And so with a word game, you know, it's a bit like explaining a joke. I mean, either you produce another word game to translate it, or you simply explain that, well, this was a pun, or this was a palindrome, which is never very fun to read. So the, the problem was, how do you translate a book that's all about playing games with language? For that reason, as you mentioned, a lot of people thought it's, it's untranslatable because it's really about the uniqueness and the idiosyncrasies of the Arabic language. Exactly. And so there are a couple exceptions. The, there was a translation done into Hebrew in the Middle Ages, which uses word games in Hebrew to translate the word games in Arabic. Fantastic translation. The same was done in German in the 19th century. So there have been attempts to do it, but those translators, the German translator and the Hebrew translator, realized that if you're going to translate a book about language, you need to use your own language. You need to bring out everything in your own language that corresponds to those kinds of games and stunts in Arabic. 
This is essentially what your book is doing. You've taken 50 different ways and hear things like Cockney rhyming slang, styles such as Jeffrey Chaucer. Did you go through systematically and go, what would be the best fit? Or how did you go about trying to find the best voice for each of these tales? Yeah, that's a great question. So for each one, I tried to find a theme. Because in Arabic, they're not in different styles exactly, but they all rhyme, meaning that they're not in verse, but the prose actually rhymes. And that's something that English really doesn't do. If you try to do it, it sounds like Dr. Seuss. So I said, all right, instead of a rhyme, I'm going to just use different English styles. And so for each of the stories, I identified a theme that I thought was one of the important ideas in the story and then chose the English on that basis. So, for example, the Cockney rhyming slang is because in the original Arabic, the trick is that the speaker, the hero of the story, produces all of these sentences that don't seem to make any sense unless you understand that certain words have double meanings. And that's very much the same that happens in Cockney rhyming slang, where you say apples and pears, and it means the stairs. And then you can abbreviate it and just say apples. So you're going up the apples. And if you don't know Cockney, you don't know what that means. So that seemed to be an appropriate way to translate that particular story. Were any of these stories more amenable to these types of translation approaches than others? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was tough in the sense that, you know, if you, if you, for the most part, if you choose a very modern style, and this is something I discovered in the course of, of working on the book, because, you know, I, didn't, I wasn't an expert in English literature by any means, but there's a moment in the beginning of the 20th century when writing becomes very unadorned. People start using much plainer language. And the, the famous example is Hemingway. And it turns out that, you really can't use any of those styles to translate this material because it's all about showing off with words. And when somebody makes a point of using only short, simple sentences with short, simple words, it fails completely. So I had a lot of trouble, actually, excluding people like Hemingway. I wanted to do one in the style of you know, 1930s detective novels, which is a great style, but it didn't work for this. Uh, it was too plain. So that's why a lot of the stories are in pretty elaborate styles and mostly old, going all the way back to the Middle Ages. In some sense, that also helps to convey the impression of this being an older text as well. Perfect. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with actually the very last, in the very last story, the hero supposedly reforms. He, because he's been begging and he tends to you know, give sermons and encourage people to reform and to pray and, and that sort of thing. And then when he collects their money, he'll go and spend it drinking somewhere which was normatively not acceptable in a medieval Islamic society. So he's, he's a hypocrite. And that's part of the idea of why the book is called Impostures, because he's an imposter in a sense. And so in the last episode, he reforms. He becomes the, the holy guy he's always pretended to be, or supposedly he does. I mean, I think it's another imposture. But, but in that one, I did it in the style of Marjorie Kemp, who was a medieval mystic, who has the very same kind of story where she reforms, but it's never really very convincing. She always seems to be trying to work at it too hard. And so uh, for that one, it's in Middle English, actually. The translation is into Middle English with the modern English at the bottom of the page. So I know it's a little tough to read because you kind of have to choose one or skip back and forth. But I'm really happy that I, I closed the book on a really medieval note because we have these resources in English. It's just that most people aren't used to reading that way. Certainly, you're well-versed in all of these different voices. I mean, it takes some getting used to in terms of changing into all the different tones, tenors. Were there some types of dialects that you weren't familiar with that you came across afterwards and said, oh, boy, that would have really been great for this story? Um, you know, it's funny. I, um, I have a fantastic press. NYU Press has been really great. And one of the things that happened was I had done 
I'd finished them and sent, it, sent the whole manuscript in. And I realized that the, the first one, the first text, the first story was wrong. The, the translation was wrong. I had tried it in the style of Sinclair Lewis, and it's a very plain early 20th century American style. It turned out it didn't work. What I needed was Mark Twain. So I said, stop the presses. I'm going to redo it. So I redid the first one in, the, in a Mark Twain voice. And Twain is great because he does the whole range from slang, informal English, this very overblown, pompous, wordy kind of style that he likes to make fun of. So he was fantastic. It turned out that was the right choice. So I had to cut Lewis, and I put in Mark Twain instead. And the same happened also with another one that I didn't like and ended up switching it to Herman Melville. So, um, so far, and the book's just come out, so far I haven't yet come across something where I think, ah, I should have used that, but no doubt it will happen. It may be the same answer for both of these questions, but which of these stories do you think are your favorite, and which of the translations do you think are your favorite? Wow, okay, great question. You know, I think each of them, the original is, varies. I mean, some of the stories are better put together than others. They seem to reflect different stages in the Silk Merchant's own sort of development of how he wanted to do this. But I think um, one of my favorites is actually the one that's done in the style of a playwright called Afra Bain, who was a 16th century English playwright, and she was one of the few women to be writing plays at the time. And for some reason, her style just worked perfectly for this, because... It's, as you say, it, it gives that archaic flavor, but she really, she had a kind of racy mind. I mean, she liked things that were kind of off-color and slightly sinister, and that's exactly the, the tone I wanted for this, and it was difficult. I mean, t- to do this, what I'd have to do is go on to, I mean, I'd read some of her works, but she wrote a lot, so what I would do is go to the full text of her works, and every time I wanted to use a word, I would check first to see if she had used it, And then I would check to see what other words around it she had used. Because generally we think of language in chunks. I mean, we sort of process it not as single words, but as sort of chunks of meaning. So it wasn't enough to just use her words. I had to use her phrases and expressions as much as possible. And I think in this case it worked pretty well. It's certainly an enjoyable book. We are running slightly out of time. As you mentioned, this is usually a text people use for learning Arabic. But, I mean, the stories themselves are are fantastic. What would you like people to take from reading the stories, both in terms of the, the work itself and the translation? I think I'd like people to think about what it means when we say that something can't be translated. Because what you're really saying is that I have something in mind that I cannot convey to you. Right? I have something in mind that you can't understand. So the question that we all have, I think, in in life and in reading and everything else is, well, is that true? And how true is it in different cases? Is it true that you can think a thing that I cannot understand or that I can think a thing that I can't convey to you? Because that's what people are saying when they say untranslatable, right? So all translators are basically taking a bet that that's not true, that I can convey something to you that's really hard to understand because of culture, because of language, because of information structure, whatever it might be. So I think that would be how I'd identify the theme, which is, are things really untransferable between human beings? Well, I certainly hope you will go take a look at the book. It's called Impostures, stories by Al-Hariri, the Silk Merchant, 50 Rogues Tales Translated 50 Ways. We were just talking with Dr. Michael Cooperson. And Dr. Cooperson, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks so much, and I love the show. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.